Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Today we reach the end of our summer message series on Jesus' simple teachings called the Beatitudes. And what we've found out so far is that they're not so simple. If you've missed any of the messages in the series, remember you can always go to our website and watch the, uh, the old messages. You can also download the sermon script if you want to get all the quotes or scripture passages mentioned. And it's a great way to enhance your personal study of scripture. Or you can use the sermon scripts as the basis for a small group discussion. After Labor Day, I'm going to be starting a new series based on the New Testament book, The Acts of the Apostles. We're going to explore how the early church looked to the future and what the future of the church might look like for us today. So using the sermon scripts would be a great way to enhance your study of that powerful part of the scripture individually or as a group. Uh, so today is really a part two of a message I started last week on this final beatitude. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Let me read that for us now. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Amen. You know, being persecuted for having faith in God has a long history. In fact, it began in the Bible's first family with the two sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, like any other parents, I'm sure Adam and Eve hoped that their two boys would grow up and just be best of friends, but that didn't happen. Cain fought with his brother Abel, killed him. Why? Well, we're given this insight in the New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Righteous. Abel's worship offering was accepted by God and Cain's wasn't. So Abel was killed for righteousness. He died because Cain hated the light he saw in his brother's life. How bizarre that the very first murder recorded in the pages of Scripture would happen because of a spiritual hatred, spiritual persecution. I never looked at it that way before this week. Blood was first shed because of one man's faith and one man's twisted hate. But it doesn't end there. The harassment and persecution of God-seeking people did not end with Abel. That was just the starting gun. Uh, think of some of these characters in the Old Testament. Joseph was persecuted by his brothers, not because they didn't like his choice in robes, you know, his technicolor dream coat, as the musical put it. They were jealous of his special relationship with God. God gave him the ability to have these dreams and interpret the future, and that just ate their lunch. They were angry about the favor God showed to Joseph. And so in Genesis 37, verse 19, it describes their plot to ambush Joseph. It says, here, here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Well, they didn't kill him, but they did sell him into slavery. He was taken as a slave to Egypt where he entered the service of a government official. And because he pursued purity and didn't succumb to the seductions of his master's wife, Potiphar, uh, that's in Genesis 39, he was persecuted even further. Potiphar makes these false accusations of sexual misconduct against him. He spends 13 years in prison just for trying to be a godly man. 
Well, the list goes on. Moses, rejected by his own people, under a death penalty by Pharaoh for speaking God's truth. That's in Exodus 17. Elijah, despised, persecuted by Jezebel and King Ahab for his relationship with God. That's in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Nehemiah was opposed, defamed, because he followed God's plan for rebuilding Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah 4. Jeremiah was thrown into another cistern, another well, which seemed to be a very popular form of torture in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. That's in Jeremiah 38. And Daniel and his friends, Daniel tossed into the den of lions, his friends tossed into the fiery furnace. Why? Because of their faith in God. Well, the New Testament paints the same picture. John the Baptist beheaded in Mark chapter 14. The disciple Stephen stoned to death with these baseball-sized rocks because he preached about Jesus. That was Acts 7. Peter and John beat up and then thrown in prison for the exact same thing. Same chapter, Acts 7. Paul, as we know, endured relentless persecutions, hardships, and all his missionary journeys. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 11. And then the persecution began to spread to ordinary believers. As Colin Smith writes, the antagonism that was first focused on the leaders of the early church soon spilled over onto the lives of its members. That's why Paul wrote these words to the Christians in the ancient city of Philippi. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's Philippians 1, 29. To the church in the ancient city of Thessalonica, which was really birthed in an atmosphere of persecution, he writes this, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. And in the same way, the Apostle Peter wrote to the believers who had to flee their homes and cities because of severe persecution and then scattered like seeds of like refugees all across ancient Turkey, up into Greece, over into the Balkans, into Western Asia. They followed almost the exact same routes being used today by the hundreds of thousands of refugees in war-torn Syria as they fled up through Turkey and across the Mediterranean. So Peter writes to them, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. That's 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 12. So when Christians today are opposed or oppressed or harassed, belittled, slandered, or even physically assaulted on account of their faith uh, and trying to pursue a godly life, that we don't need to ask, why is this happening? If you look at the Bible and the history of the church through the centuries, what you discover is that suffering for being a Christian is actually the norm rather than the exception. The norm rather than the exception. Persecution is actually normal for people who sincerely follow Jesus. This is certainly the experience of the majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today. We don't feel it like they do. We have religious freedom 
constitutional protections here in the United States that are the exception and not the rule globally. But if you remember your history, most of the first colonists who came to this country were doing what? They were fleeing religious persecution back in their homelands. They fled their home countries where governments endorsed certain religious denominations and then used the power of the government to persecute anybody else who wasn't a part of that denomination. They were fleeing religious persecution. You see, that's always the danger when you co-mingle religion and politics. When they merge, when your religion and your politics becomes the same thing, friends, it always turns poisonous. And persecution then isn't far behind. At least that's what history teaches us. And as a side note, over the centuries, you know, Christians, we've been pretty good at inflicting serious, bloody religious persecution on other Christians and on people from other faiths in order to protect, you know, our own political or religious power. The church, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church, has a lot of blood on its hands for its role in persecuting people, especially indigenous people. And this is especially egregious because church leaders endorsed murdering and torturing people, supposedly in Jesus' name. I mean, how sick is that? So far from being an abnormal thing, persecution is actually the norm for Christians over the centuries. So in some sense, we ought to expect it. This is actually what we're taught in Scripture. Jesus himself said it to us, said it to his disciples in the upper room dialogue right before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, a servant is not greater than his teacher. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He was very clear. Peter then goes on and echoes these words when he writes in 1 Peter 5, 5, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, did you hear that? Not some, not a select few, not just pastors, not missionaries, not super saints, all. All who desire to live a godly life. That's what Jesus meant by righteousness and because of me. Those who try to live out their love for Jesus in this world will inevitably run up against opposition. Sometimes that opposition is so strong that it leads to violence and martyrdom. The roots of this opposition lie in the fact that human nature is not neutral towards God. Human nature is actually hostile to God. And when you try to live for Christ, even in, the, even in the most loving way, you become a light that shines on the darkness that other people, they don't want to see. When Jesus, who was the most beautiful, most loving, most gracious, most hope-filled person this world has ever seen, well, we, I mean, just look at what happened to him. People turned against Jesus because he exposed the depth of dirt in the human heart. And rather than surrender pride, rather than bend the knee before him, and turn to Jesus for grace and mercy, forgiveness and new life, they tried to stamp it out with violence. That's why Jesus told his disciples, don't expect that the world is going to like you. Don't expect that you will be friends with these evil systems and structures and powers and people in the world. Don't expect to be thanked for trying to live a godly life. You know, in your business, you know, when they really just want you to cut corners or in your school where peer pressure is high, or in your community, or possibly even in your family, don't expect to be thanked for living as a Christian. As one writer puts it, the world tolerates Christians with suspicion at best and persecutes us with hostility at the worst. 
Now, I probably overstated the case last week when I said there really isn't much persecution of Christians going on here in the United States. I, I was trying to make the point that being asked to wear a mask in public is not some form of religious persecution, and that we shouldn't diminish real persecution by crying wolf all the time. You know, if we're crying, crying wolf too easily, you know, people are not going to pay attention to that. Depends on how we want to define the levels of persecution that we see. I've mentioned before Thomas Watson, who was a Presbyterian pastor in England back in the mid-1600s, and he wrote a great commentary on the Beatitudes that's really served everybody since. He was briefly in prison for his faith. He lost his church because of persecution by the Church of England, so he knows a little bit about this. And in his writings, he would distinguish between two types of oppression. The first he called persecution of the hand, which meant any kind of physical intimidation, violence, torture, injury, destruction of personal property. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video of August 7th, an incident in Portland, where an elderly woman stood alone between these Antifa rioters and a police precinct building. The rioters were attempting to set the building on fire and then block the exits to try and trap the police officers inside. And this white-haired woman just said no and simply stood between the rioters and the building. And so they poured white paint over her head. They tried to physically intimidate her to moving out of the way. But she stood her ground with an amazing amount of courage. That's persecution by the hand. Watson also called that there was a second kind of persecution, the persecution of the tongue. Verbal insults, jokes, snide comments, things designed to humiliate, ridicule and gossip, spreading rumors or lies, you know, verbal sabotage around the office, uh, shaming, blaming, scapegoating. You know, that's really how persecution started against the first century church. It was verbal. They were accused of being, and get this, accused of being atheists and cannibals. Atheists and cannibals. Why? Because they would not worship the Roman emperor as a god, which all Roman citizens were required to do once a year, bow down before the royal eagle, which symbolized the divinity of the emperors, and the Christians couldn't do that, so they were called atheists. And cannibals, because people heard that in their religious rituals, they ate the body and drank the blood of their founder. I mean, how gruesome. So you can see how things are easily twisted. And they didn't even have Twitter back then to spread viral lies. I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he said in verse 11 of Matthew 5, that people will revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. When you are publicly associated with Jesus, your name might get dragged through the mud. Maybe that's why so many Christians are reluctant to go public with their faith because they are afraid and they don't want to have to deal with the blowback from their circle at work or school or in their clique of friends. Now let's not skip over one key word in what Jesus said about this beatitude. He said the word falsely. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If I get into trouble because I just talk too much or because I meddle where I don't belong, or if I'm rude or arrogant or condescending, or if I try to force my faith on other people, or I act you know, inconsistently, kind of showcasing my faith in some areas and then hiding it in others, if my words are spoken in anger, or if I'm filled with vitriol, if I'm promoting my own cause, my own agenda, and not the gospel of Jesus, and there's pushback, well then that's not persecution. That's just being a jerk, and I talked about that last week too. We need to repent from that if we've compromised our witness for Christ. 
People will want nothing to do with you or with your faith in Christ if that's how you're coming across. Honestly, some Christians do have a bit of a martyr complex, and they kind of set themselves up to be rejected and persecuted, and then that validates their feelings of being a martyr. Really, all that does is to bring further dishonor to the name of Christ and to make the work of his church even harder. So there's a dilemma for us. We do need to examine our own behavior so that we're not drawing criticism onto the Christian faith uh, unnecessarily because we're screwing it up by our bad witness. And yet, even if we do the very best we can possibly do, even if we're near perfect in how our lives witness to the grace of Christ, even if we're the most loving, we will still draw criticism and persecution. Again, 1 Peter 5, 5, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Another way of saying it is this, where there's light, there's bugs. Where there's light, there's bugs. And you can tweet that for me. Where there's light, there's bugs. The light of Jesus will always attract opposition because that's just the way of the world. If they treat me this way, Jesus said, they're going to treat you that way too. So what are we supposed to do? Well, always, always go back to the words of Jesus. Just always get real close to him. Listen to him. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus' words to the disciples as he sends them out to preach the good news of the gospel. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Notice that Jesus does not say, the world is like a pack of wolves ready to tear you apart, so go ahead and let them do it. No. He says, realizing that we will face hostility in the world, we must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Wise as serpents means use your head. Be smart about how you speak and act and how you live your life. It means taking things seriously, but then also not being paralyzed by you know, one act of hostility. It means not intentionally putting yourself in the cultural crosshairs unless God specifically calls you maybe to that kind of prophetic ministry. And Jesus mentioned the prophets. God gave you a brain, so you've got to use it to navigate through all these complicated situations at work and school and home. But it also means that you trust Jesus and you turn to him in prayer in those situations. He'll give you the wisdom you need, the words you need to speak in every situation. He promises that through the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, I think it's chapter 14. Promises that the Holy Spirit will assist you in any situation like that so you can be smart, wise as serpents. And innocent as doves, that's about your Christ-like character. Being careful about your speech and conduct. Make sure you're living your life in a way that's pleasing to Christ. And I think that includes your online persona, your social media posts. So be careful not to speak or act in such a way as to unnecessarily provoke others to attack you or other Christians or the cause of Christ by persecution of the hand or persecution of the tongue. Don't just be a reactionary. Don't let your tongue get you into trouble. Don't let anger and frustration and worry cause you to compromise your witness. Double down on a Christ-like character in stressful situations. And that brings us full circle back to the Beatitudes. It is a daring thing to commit to live out the Beatitudes in your daily life. The Beatitudes are Jesus' philosophy of life simplified. The world's philosophy is exactly the opposite of what Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes. An opposite point of views are eventually going to lead to opposing ways of life. 
At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about how following him is like traveling down a narrow road. The narrow road that he wants his children to walk is not like parallel to the broad side of the road, the broad road of the world. No, it runs down right through the center line as though you're walking in one direction and the rest of the world is walking in the other. So it's almost impossible not to have some collisions. Jesus tells us to be poor in spirit, but the world is going to tell you to boost your ego, tout your own self-reliance before God. The world's not interested in mourning over its sins. There's some regret when things go sideways, but that feeling is soon swept away. Meekness is considered weakness. Controlled strength is discounted because it's the aggressive, pushy people, it's the squeaky wheels who get their way. The world has no real appetite for righteousness, not true righteousness, because that means they'd have to surrender their hearts to God's ultimate control. Mercy, purity, peacemaking, those are concepts that are often publicly extolled but in reality, rarely practiced. Usually they're just a cover for a hidden agenda, people getting what they want under the guise of helping others. Jesus came to this world to reveal God's true nature to us and to be this bridge of redemption that can lead us back into a solid relationship with our Creator. And so our response to the broken world that Jesus loves, it needs to be in harmony with His own response, even to those who persecuted Him. It's a threefold response because we're now united with him. And because we're united with him, three things. We reign, we rejoice, and we release love. We reign. Matthew 5.10 tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we share Christ's suffering, it also means we share in his kingdom glory. Remember the great promise written in Romans 8? Let me read it for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, any height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a great promise. It's a persecution promise. We will be with Jesus and we will reign with him. That is our future blessing, to reign. But right now we're to rejoice with Christ. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right now our attitude should be that of rejoicing. Not that we're, you know, sadists who somehow enjoy suffering. No, rejoice because we have a larger picture of the universe, a picture of life that's bigger than these light and momentarily, momentary troubles as we're experiencing right now, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. To have a God-sized picture of life. And in addition to that, we rejoice because we gain a more intimate experience of Christ's presence in our hearts when we endure persecution and suffering. There's a presence that brings comfort and confidence for each new day. The peace of Christ, which passes all of understanding and guarding us, it's for these, these times of trouble and persecution. And so he guards our hearts and minds and our emotions. And so then we can rejoice even in the face of difficulty because we have this nearness of Christ. Thirdly, we release love. If you keep going in the Sermon on the Mount, back to, down to verse uh, 43, 
chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, and this is a hard one, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love as a response to hatred. Love as a response to prejudice. Love as a response to persecution. I mean, that's graduate school level Christianity. And I know most of us still feel like we're in spiritual kindergarten. Pray for those who persecute you. Honestly, that is not my first response. That is not my first impulse. But doing our best to build bridges of understanding and sacrificial love, we do that because it's ignorance that breeds suspicion and suspicion that breeds fear. Yes, we get wrong. We will be misunderstood, maybe even persecuted. Jesus says love anyway. Love anyway. Christian love is anything but shallow or, or easy or wimpy. Love anyway. Christ's way of love is the hardest road to follow when we want to retaliate or give, get even. It means treating others the way Jesus treats me. Love anyway. Our response to persecution, reigning with Christ, rejoicing in his presence, releasing his love. That first beatitude is really the climax. I mean, this last beatitude, it's the climax of them all. It's the, un, it's the Christian who doesn't compromise, who will often be set at odds as they sincerely pursue the will of the Father. For the next two weeks, I'm going to continue in chapter 5 in Matthew, where Jesus talks about being salt and light. But, you know, we never really finish with the Beatitudes. There will always be new discoveries in our hearts and new experiences of God's grace. So let me encourage you to just kind of shake off any lethargy of the soul that might be holding you back from following Jesus with your whole heart. Shake that off. Take the Beatitudes to heart. Walk through life the Jesus way. And you will find that he's going to be your constant companion and your faithful guide. That's what his kingdom is really all about. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you were so honest with us about the reality of what we face and that our experience of relatively little to no persecution is really unusual and not normal for your followers throughout the generations. Help us to hold precious the freedoms that we do have, Lord, and that we do enjoy, and that we could use those freedoms to properly share the good news here and support our brothers and sisters around the globe, Lord. Help us to be ready when any kind of uh, persecution comes, whether persecution of the hand or persecution of the tongue. Help us to be ready to know how to respond in love, Lord, in hard, tough love because that's what you desire for us, Lord. Help us to be strong in our witness, even this week. It's your name we pray. Amen.